Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And our text this morning will actually be 6b through verse 8. So we're going to be tackling those three verses here this morning. But let's begin at verse 1 in order to put it into context. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that as you received from us instructions as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgresses and defrauds his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we work our way through this text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We are continually grateful that you did not just put us here and leave us to wander around in the dark trying to please you and not knowing who you are. But you gave us your word. It is written. It is permanent. It is in human language and it is in our language so that we can understand it. And you have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate those truths to us so that we can know for sure what is true and right. And because of that, we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would again work in our hearts, that he would teach us the truths in this word and confirm them to us and convince us of the truth that we might live a life that is changed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit here this morning. So build your church this morning and may you be glorified through the preaching of your word and the hearing and the obeying in your name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through First Thessalonians, and we've really maybe changed directions here as we've come through the end of chapter 3. And we were, keep on reminding you, and I want us to walk us through this a little bit again, because it's been several weeks, and I know I forget after several weeks, and so I'm, I'm assuming that we're all similar in that same boat. And so Paul is coming to the end of chapter 3 in verse 10, and he says... Uh, we, we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. We want to be with you face to face. We want to be in fellowship with you. And we may complete what is lacking in your faith. And this is really Paul's concern for the Thessalonians. I want to complete what is lacking in your faith. He's not saying you're, you, there's something wrong with them. He's just saying you're not mature believers yet. There are some areas that where you need to grow spiritually. There are some... I, 
areas where your conduct needs to be changed and there's some instruction that needs to be given to you so you know what the Lord wants for you. And so he goes ahead and he prays for them and he, and he prays that, he, that God would work in their lives and that he, would, he prays for the things that they need, that they would increase in love and that they would continue to grow and, he, and to establish them blameless in God. And so he now prays that God will be the instrument to help change them. But as he comes to chapter 4, he says, guess what? I recognize that I can still be part of the answer to prayer. In other words, it's not just somebody else to go, but I can, even though I can't go back to them, I can actually write a letter and I can address some of the concerns that they have that I have about their faith. And so he writes to them and he gives them some instructions on what they are to do. And then as he comes to verse 3, he really, he really hones in and he says, For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And he says, here is God's will. This is what God has for you. There is the idea of holiness. You need to be set apart from sin, consecrated to God. You are to live for him and you are to change the way that you have lived. You are no longer a pagan. You are no longer a sinner. You are now identified as a saint. And you are no longer a sinner. Yes, you are a believer who sins, but you are not identified by being a sinner. You are identified by who you have been saved by, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you become a saint, one who is holy, set apart for God. And so after really revealing the word of God, he now begins to apply the word of God and he, and he starts to apply the word of God in an area that he understands that they need help. This is a, maybe, maybe the most pressing concern that he has for them at this point. And he says, here's the area that you must be sanctified in. This is the area that you need to work on and you need to recognize. And he says, it's in the area of sexual purity. You need to be sexually pure. You are living, you were in a society that was pagan and sexuality was part of worship. And he says, now you have to recognize God's purposes for sexuality and you must work on that area. And so through verses 3b to 6a, he gives us three, these areas. And he says, first of all, don't dabble in sexual sin. Abstain from any form of sexuality. In other words, it's not something that you can dip your toe in. He says, from all kinds of sexuality, anything that is not within the confines of marriage that God has ordained is not to be dabbled with. Don't think that this is an area where you can, you can just kind of play around the edges. And so he eliminates that completely from them. And then he says, how am I going to do that? Hold your vessel. In other words, control your flesh. Control the lusts of your flesh. You need to be continually mortifying the flesh. You need to be on that. You must have your affections turned to God. And then he says, thirdly, protect other believers in the area of sexuality. In other words, you don't, you don't be the one who causes another believer to stumble in this area. In fact, he says, if you cause a believer to stumble, it's better for you to have, what, a millstone put around your neck and be thrown into the water and drowned than to stumble another believer. 
And so he, he gives these three exhortations, as it were, about sexuality. And he says, here's what you need to know. Here's where you need to make sure that you shore yourself up. Now, as Paul comes to this next section, he kind of answers that question as to, really, is it a big deal? Why why should I do it? Why should I do it? Because there, there might be a temptation, and we live in a society today where morality is very low. We live in a society that, that everything is permissible. And so you might, you might see these commands or these exhortations and you might say, well, that's for the super-Christian, really, right? That's for, for the, you know, the, those guys who are far out. And after all, God is love, right? God is love. He loves me the way I am. And I don't really have to, you know, if I fall short, that's okay. Because after all, God is a God of grace, God gives us grace. There's more. If I sin, there's more grace. If I sin, there's more grace. Turn on the TV. You'll hear this, right? And so there's almost a cult of failure in this area because after all, what? God's a God of grace. In fact, it's almost held up as a badge of honor because after all, we can just have more grace from God. And it's interesting because as one theologian pointed out, you can talk about sexuality, I mean about any other subject than sexuality, and the world does not get too ruffled with it. If I told you, and I went out to a group of unbelievers and I said to them, listen, you need to love your neighbor. They go, I like that, right? I like that. You know what? Pride is a problem. And you'll get some of them that would say, yeah, actually pride is a problem. It is a problem. I mean, I can see how it can be damaging. You say, hey, stealing is bad. And they might say, hey, yeah, I don't like my stuff taken, so I think that's a good idea. And you can talk on many different subjects, but you get to this one, and you get to sexuality, and you say, actually, God has ordained how this is to be in marriage, and that, guess what? These expressions of sexuality are not right, and guess what? Boom! you got to fight, right? You've got to fight. Just go out and proclaim God's view on marriage today. Go out to the world and say, listen, marriage is between a man and a woman. Whoa! What are you doing? Right? All of a sudden, it's, it's actually not right to have premarital sex. You need to actually be married first. Whoa, what are you doing? And the world gets upset, and it's a lightning rod. Because here is, here is a basic instinct, and here is a basic sin that goes to the core of who we are. And outside of survival, it's the strongest instinct, and the devil corrupts it the most. And so Paul says, in no uncertain terms to the Thessalonians, I want you, I want to make sure that you know why you shouldn't do this. Why, what's the motive for not doing this? Because I don't want you to be like the, saying, hey, it's okay. It's okay, to, it's okay, because God's full of grace. After all, Jesus is loving and kind. 
Why, why, should I, why should I do that? After all, right? Once saved, always saved. Once I'm in, once I've expressed faith. Really, we're just talking about surviving until we get to heaven, right? I can resist the Holy Spirit. It's not a big deal. And Paul says, actually, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And so this morning, as he comes, he's going to give us three areas, three motives, we would say, for purity, for sexual purity. In the area of sexual ethics, he's going to give us three motives to be obedient to the will of God in this area. The first motive is that God is the God who will judge those who are moral. In other words, Jesus is the avenger to come. The second motive is that he has called you with a holy calling. The Father has called you to holiness. And thirdly, you are not rejecting men. You are quenching the Spirit. Now it's interesting... As you look through this text, and I just want to point out a couple of things that I find interesting, and I'm hoping you find them interesting before we walk our way through these three. In this verses 3b to 6a, he gave us three exhortations that started with the word that, right? He started through and he goes, that is, you abstain from immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own uh, vessel, and that no man transgresses his brother. And so there is this three, three uh, exhortations that begin with the word that. But what he does in the second half of the paragraph, beginning in the verse, middle of verse 6, and, and you'll notice this, he, he, he gives us three motivations, and they each start with an explanatory conjunction. Oh, I know you're happy to be back in English class. Right? I, I, just, I, I just saw you light up when I said that. Now notice he says, for example, in verse beginning, middle of verse 6, because, that's motivation number one. Then the beginning of verse 7, for, another transitional term of motiva- uh, that explains. And then in the middle of verse 8, he says, so... So because, for, so, and he lays out for us just simply three motives based on these explanatory conjunctions about the exhortations. Another thing that I want you to notice, and I think it's fascinating, this is the mind of God as he writes the word of God. Not only does he just lay it out so neatly for us here, but Paul now grounds his motivation in, in each one of these motives is grounded in the Trinity itself. It is, it is in the tri, our triune God that he actually bases all of these motives. Now you'll notice, first of all, he begins by referring to the Lord. And again, whenever Paul uses that term, he's not referring to the Father, he's referring to Jesus. So he says, Jesus is the avenger. He's the first person to emphasize in this motivation. It's the Lord Jesus. The second one is the name of God appears. And in Paul's writing, it is always a reference to what? God the Father here. So he's gone Jesus. Now he's gone to God the Father. 
And then the last one is the Holy Spirit. And it's very intentional. Each one of these is intentional. And so Paul says, I'm going to ground the motivations in the persons of the Trinity. God's will is to be obeyed, and it includes all of the Trinity. Each one of them is saying the same thing. So God's will is to be obeyed. Jesus is a future avenger, verse 6. Second, we are to obey the Father because he saved us in holiness. And then we are to obey because the Spirit is present with us. He is our present helper now. So now we're going to go to the text this morning. That was just fun. Well, actually, uh, I want you to notice one other thing (laughs) as we go through. This is just fun. Uh, As we look at this, he doesn't just... We have the persons of the Trinity being the foundation and the motivation, but notice there's a subtle change in each one of these as well in the motivation when it comes to timing. And I want you to notice this. With respect, Jesus being the avenger, he points to the future. He's, Jesus is the avenger. He's going to come and he's going to give a, make everyone give an account. Res, with respect to God the Father, he points to the past. He has what? Called you. So he says, remember what God the Father has done for you. All right? And then with respect to the Holy Spirit, he points to the present. In other words, the Holy Spirit is with you now. And so he he covers everything, past, future, and the present in these motivations. So number one, let's look at these. Number one, we are to obey. We are motivated because what? It says Jesus is the future avenger. He is the avenger to come. Notice he says this because. So he's introducing the first three of these motivations. And this one is focused on Christ and focused on the future. And it is a warning. We could say this is the negative side. He is giving a warning here. Now, there are many people who will teach you That, you know what, God does not, not use warnings for the believer. That's just not a good motivation for you. You know what, there's, there's nothing to do with warnings and, and, and threatening when it comes to sanctification. Well, that's just not true. Because Paul does it right here. Paul is giving a warning and it's a serious one. He is, he is threatening the believer with the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the Lord is the avenger. Now this title is, most, is the title that Paul uses most for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the title that he chooses to use for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we only have to go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 to see that how Paul uses this word. This is the closest antecedent, the closest use of the word Lord, and we see it here in chapter 2, in, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 
He says, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in what? The Lord Jesus. And again, he puts the Lord together with Jesus. And so in context, we recognize we don't switch horses unless we're given a reason to switch horses. And he says the Lord Jesus. Then he goes on into verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So again, this is Paul's title for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a direct reference to Jesus. And in the, we would say this. It's appropriate for this warning. He doesn't call him Jesus. He doesn't call him Christ. He calls him Lord because he is emphasizing here the authority and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He de- he's not talking. He, he wants you to recognize that the Lord Jesus has the authority to be the avenger. He, has, he, is, the, he is the sovereign God who is able to judge. He is the God of vengeance. The God of vengeance is Jesus. Paul, now, Paul, as we go back to the text here, if you, if you look at your Bibles, he says this. He is the avenger in all these things. All these things. He does, in other words, he says, I'm not, just pointing, I'm not just pointing you back to defrauding your brother in this matter. Though that, that, is, that is the primary reference that he makes. But he says, yes, I want you to recognize that Jesus is the, the offender, is the avenger of those who defraud their brother, who cause them to stumble sexually. But he says, guess what? I mean all of these things, all of the, all of the exhortations that I've given, holding your flesh, right? Don't dabble in it. All of these things are included in this motivation that Jesus is the avenger of what? All of these things. So don't think that you can somehow be okay by dabbling in a different area that doesn't cause your, or doesn't cause your brother to stumble or that you can somehow be able, as it were, to not mortify your flesh and everything will be okay. He says all of these things God will avenge. How you act in your body, how you act towards your brother, and how you act in any way that is outside of God's plan will ultimately be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that plural there, right? All things, all things. Not just defrauding your brother, but in all things. And so this is Paul's, in all the exhortations that Paul gave about sexual ethics, he says, Jesus is the avenger. Now it's interesting because I missed speaking about the idea of being an avenger. I'm wondering if I I skipped a page here because I think it's important for us to recognize what does it mean to be an avenger, right? Because we start to hear that word and we sound it sounds like vengeance and it sounds like hey this is that's not nice, right? As a Christian, you're not supposed to take vengeance. That's a bad thing. Why on earth? 
how can, how can Jesus be the avenger? How can he be the one who ultimately takes his wrath out on people and is not kind to them? Well, the word avenger here, we'll see if we, we do not have page five. The word avenger has the idea here of someone who gives a appropriate penalty for a wrong done. In other words, the idea here is not one who is just angry and take getting revenge, but the idea is there's an appropriate penalty for a wrong that is done. And it, so the avenger is, is the person who actually does that. He takes and he goes and he gives the appropriate penalty for a wrong done. So this isn't some divine temper tantrum. This is God in his justice doling out an appropriate penalty for the sin that is done. And so it says Jesus is the what? The avenger. He will be the one who will ultimately put the scales of justice where they should be and he will judge those sins. Now, as he speaks to believers here, he says, listen, there's a possibility when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ that you will lose rewards. Those rewards that Jesus said, if you build, right, in 1 Corinthians, if you build on this foundation with gold, precious stones, right, you will, you will have, it will stay. But if you build with wood, hay, and stubble, it will be gone. And you will lose reward. And ultimately, we know this that if you continue to live in this way without any kind of, uh, we would call resistance, and it is who you are, ultimately you will find out when you get there you're not a believer at all. And he will judge you for your sin and ultimately throw you into the lake of fire. And we often take the warnings here and we kind of go, well, that's... Hey, once saved, always saved. Hey, we're good. We're elect. We're all fine. But we're told in Scripture, make your what? Calling and election sure. And one of the motivations for us should be that, listen, there's going to be a time where what? I'm going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for how I behaved in this area. And I want him to say what? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Instead of having a lack of reward or finding out that altogether that I totally disregarded his lordship and, and am not his at all. I want you to notice this last phrase here. Just as we told you and warned you. I want you to see how important this issue is. He, he doesn't say this area of sexual ethics is kind of a secondary issue here. Right? J just, just believe... And hopefully later, there's some other more important things to work on. And maybe we'll get to this at another time. We know from the book of Acts in chapter, Acts chapter 17, that it, Paul was at Thessalonica for a very short time, probably three months. He didn't have a lot of time to deal with them. And he didn't have a lot of time to iron out all the theology and all the kinks in their lifestyle. But he says, but when I was there, 
We told you and solemnly warned you about this. We've already warned you about the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. We already told you about how you are to behave in, your, in regard to sexuality. This word solemnly warned means an exhortation with authority in matters of extraordinary importance. And he said, we, we solemnly told you about this. We solemnly warned you. We didn't leave this for another time. And this is what we must grasp. This was part of the training and instructions of new disciples. This wasn't something that they punted down the road and thought we'll get to it later. He says, this is right up front. We dealt with this right away. This is an important issue. Certainly Christ had much to say about this. And so does Paul. We must call those who come to salvation, we must call them to recognize that this starts at conversion, not later on. It's not something to be taught. And we must not give them a picture of Jesus because we often give him this picture of Jesus of being meek and mild. He's safe. He's our friend. He's our, he's our brother. But recognize that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lords of lords and he will judge. He, is, he has been given that by the Father, Jesus said, and he will come again and we will stand before him and give him an account. And let us not give a false impression of who the Lord Jesus Christ was. When it came to truth, when it came to what God required, He was as confrontational and as strong as any man that ever lived. And that's when He came to save. Wait till He comes as judge, Lord and King. So let us be motivated by the recognition that one day we will stand before a God. And though it may seem like people are getting away with it now and we don't see anything happening, there's a day of reckoning coming. And we will stand before him and let us be motivated so that we hear well done rather than standing in judgment. That's point number one. So not only are we to avoid immorality because Jesus is the avenger, but we see here now a second reason, because the Father has called us in holiness. Because the Father has called us in holiness. This motivation, again, we said the first one focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. This one focuses on the Father. It focuses on the past And it calls us to remember what has taken place. God has called us for the purpose, not for the purpose of impurity, but into sanctification. And it starts with this little word for. It indicates that the warning that Christ will judge is justified in in view of what God the Father has already done. Here's the explanation. Christ is going to be the avenger. Why? Because what the Father has done. He says, for he has called us. 
Now, this word called is always used in the New Testament outside of the Gospels for the effectual call of God to salvation. And the emphasis here, and Paul puts it very clearly in, in, in the original, he's putting an emphasis on this. He says, literally, he, he's, ta- he's saying, he called us, not he called us, God. In other words, God is emphasized in the fact that God is the one who actively called us. And so he's not saying the missionaries called them to the gospel. We know that there is that external call. First Corinthians tells us there's an ex- external call to the gospel. That, go- that gospel is given to the Jews, a stumbling block, right? To the Greeks, I mean, foolishness. But to the called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he says, this is that effectual call of God to, to you to salvation. God is the one who took the initiative. God is the one who called you. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he what? He also called. He called, and those he called, he also what? Justified. There's no break in this chain. He called all he called were justified, all he justified, he will also what? Glorify. And he says, this is that, that effectual call of God to salvation. He called you, God called you to himself. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now this call here sometimes is directional, just like this here, where he says, I've called you, I called you out of darkness... Now notice this, he doesn't say, I called you to come out of darkness. He says, I called you and you what? You came. And so there's a directional, you went from darkness to light. But here he's, his, he says, the purpose, it's not just, it's not directional, but it's purposeful. I called you for a purpose. I called you specifically for a purpose, not just to come out of darkness into light, not just a spiritual life, but I've called you for a particular purpose. And he says that purpose, first of all, is not, he says, not for impurity. It's not for you to continue to live your life in sexual immorality. It's not for you to continue to live as, as your pagan life was before, just to carry on as this, and, and there be no change at all that you continue to live in the sphere of the life that you have. Rather, he says, I've called you, but in sanctification, in contrast, in contrast to not impurity, I've called you in sanctification. I've called you in sanctification, in holiness. In other words, I have placed you You are now in a new sphere of life of holiness. God's call to salvation is not just to get saved. It's not just so that you can have faith and get to heaven. He's called you into a sphere that is righteous. In other words, he's called you to be holy. That calling, he said, Timothy says, I called you with a what? A holy calling. You're now set apart for God and now you are to be living in a way that is equal to your calling. 
you now begin that lifelong process of moving towards Christ-likeness. You don't just stay where you're at. You're, you're called with a holy calling. And he says, recognize this, Thessalonians. And he says to us here at Bowmanville, recognize this. God called you not to impurity, but with a holy calling. In fact, when you came to salvation, one of the appeals that you saw was the holiness of God. You saw a difference. It was not mundane. It was not the same. It was different and it was attractive. And that was what's made God attractive to you as he called you. And he says, and my new favorite word, it's incongruent for you to continue to live in immorality and sin when God has called you to the exact opposite. And one of the things that we just really want to shatter is the difference between faith and life. You don't just have faith in God. It has an effect on your life. And he has called you not just to believe in him, but into holiness to be like him. And that's why he says in his word that we are to be what holy as he is holy. Be holy as he is holy. And again, we just don't go like, oh, that's impossible. Oh, that you're just, you know, that's, that's, that's a lofty goal. Actually, no, he says, that's what I called you for. That's compatible with your calling. This is who you are as a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who isn't in the, in the process of holiness. You've been called to holiness. Now you progress in that holiness. And so he says, listen, here's some of your motivation. When you're tempted sexually, remember this. Remember what you were called to. Remember who called you. Remember how attractive God was when, when he opened your eyes and you saw him for the first time and you saw his holiness and his greatness and you what? You found him attractive. And the thing is, is that we, we simply don't contemplate these concepts. We, 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 we give, we give a, like a 30-second thought about it. And we're like, hmm, well, that's pretty cool. But we don't really meditate on it and continue to think about it and to look at scriptures about it so that we're convinced about it so that it becomes part of who we are and part of our convictions. And I will tell you this, if you only think about this when you're tempted, it's too late. It's too late. You need to marinate in this so that you actually believe it when it comes. Putting out platitudes and throwing things at the wall and hoping it sticks does not work unless the Holy Spirit has taken His Word and changed you and make you so that you are transformed by His Word so that when this temptation comes, you are convinced of the truth of the Word of God and these truths warm your heart. And they motivate you to obedience. Well, Paul says, be motivated because Jesus is the avenger. I I told you about that. Be motivated because The Father has called you to holiness. Remember who you are. Remember your call. 
And then he comes to verse 8. This third motivation found in verse 8. We are to obey because the Spirit is our present help. Because the Spirit is our present help. So he begins this one with a conjunction. It's a rare one. It's only used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And it's a call to bring everything to a conclusion. He's wrapping up, but he saves this one to the end. And so Paul says, I want, I want in verse 8, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so, as one theologian says, we can summarize these up. The first motivation is summarized by beware. The second motivation is summarized by remember. And then the third can be summarized by the word appropriate. In other words, take hold of. Paul says, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit. So Paul employs this, this not, the, not this, but that construction, and it's helpful for us. It helps us making things clear, concrete, and black. Don't do this, do this. And he, re, and he says, uh, he who rejects this, and again, this verb refers to someone or something that cannot be trusted, the word reject, you don't trust it. So if you don't think that the commandments that were given to you are trustworthy, if you don't think that they're good for you, if you think they're off base, Paul says if, if you believe that, you're reject, not rejecting God, a man, but you're rejecting God who gives you the Holy Spirit. He says it's not, these, these exhortations to sexual purity are not something that Paul made up. There, there's not some, a couple of prudes that got together in a room and decided that this was good for mankind. These come from God himself. He says, you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God. And again, it, Paul, Paul he, he, just, he just pulls out the big, big guns here because he, he says, listen, he, this is full divine authority. He says, it's not me, but you are rejecting what? God. He says, when I, call, when I called you to abstain from sexual immorality, to control your flesh, to protect the sanctity of others, that's not human opinion. It comes from the very mouth of God himself. It is his will for you. So you're not just rejecting man, you're rejecting God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Now look at that verb for gives here. It's in the present tense. And we could, we could say this, it's a, it's a present tense participle. And the idea here is, he says this is an ongoing activity, or, the, or some say it's an ongoing activity as if the Holy Spirit is continually be given to you. Some say it's timeless. In other words, the Holy Spirit has been given to you for all time. Either way, he's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. He is here in the present tense. He is with you. God is the one who gives to you the Holy Spirit. 
and we have the Holy Spirit in us. It's kind of an awkward statement in the Greek for the sake of emphasis. It's not, again, incorrect grammatically. It's just an emphatic statement. And we would translate it like this. It is God who gives his spirit the Holy One. The Holy One. And so that is really the designation, the Holy One, is, is really the main concept, the main focus of everything that we have been studying since we left verse 3. This is the will of God, what? Your holiness. We translated it sanctification. In other words, you're set apart for sin and consecrated to God. And so we come to the same related word at the very end of the text. And he specifically emphasizes the spirit as a spirit of what? Sanctification. He's the one who is responsible for promoting and empowering and cultivating sanctification within the believer's life. I want you to notice this one thing. He has given us the spirit, his spirit, the Holy One to you. And again, the English does not come through here, but there's something very interesting in the wording here. He doesn't say it in a normal way that he would normally say about the Spirit being given to you. Rather, literally, Paul says, he is the one who gives his Spirit, the Holy One, into you. Not in you, but into you. He uses this preposition, into. It's not normal in his Paul's writing. I think it's important, and it's a, it points to a parallel in the Old Testament in Psalm 93, where again, he says that he will pour out what? His spirit in you. I mean, Ezekiel 37. God who gives his spirit into you, not just to you, but he's now in you. He's indwelling you. Ezekiel 37, we remember the chapter of the, of the dry bones and the valley of vision. Ezekiel is shown the valley of dry bones, no life, no flesh, no sinew, no nothing. Nothing but death, nothing but dead bones. And God puts his spirit into them, into the bones. Sinews appear, flesh comes, and they come alive. He's put his spirit into them. And God says in Ezekiel 37, 14, I will put my spirit, and our, our New American stands within, but the Greek says, into you, and I will put my spirit into you, and you will come to life, and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the, the Lord have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. What is this a reference? This is a reference to the precious Old Testament promise of the new covenant. A new covenant promise, a special covenant. And he says, all of the promises are coming forward. Israel never obeyed fully. The nation never, as a nation, never obeyed the, the old covenant. But in the new covenant promise comes along and God says, you know what? I will make this nation love me. I will do it. I will put my spirit in them. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to make something new. My spirit's in them. Now this promise was made to the nation of Israel. And, and, and Paul is, what Paul is doing here is saying, listen, the blessings of the new covenant are for the Gentile church in Thessalonica. You know what God is doing, and he's doing it in a unique way. A unique way. He's put his spirit in you, and you already are benefiting it. The Gentile church already has the Holy Spirit. Yes, the promises of the nation of Israel still stands, and there's coming a day when the nation 
the people of Israel will have the Holy Spirit and will be placed in them and Israel will repent. But Paul says here, God is already doing it for you. You're already getting a foretaste of that reality. You already have that Holy Spirit given to you. So what does it mean that you have the Holy Spirit? What's the significance? Okay, he's in me. What, what, what's the big deal? Because now you have the ability to obey. The ability that you did not have in your own strength. You could not keep the law. You could not keep the ways of God. You could not control your flesh. Even if you believe that God's laws were good, and even if you believe that they came from God, and that that it was in, that they were, you you respected those laws. You had no strength to do it, and this is why Israel struggled in the Old Testament. They had the law, but without the Spirit. But the New Testament believer has been given the Holy Spirit. You now have the ability to obey. I want you to listen to this. When you come across sexual temptation, you come across this area in your life, and you say, I don't have the power to, to resist. Now listen to this. What you are saying, what you are in essence saying, is there is no spirit in you. You are saying... I am not saved, I am not called, I have not experienced the irresistible call. You are denying what the Holy Spirit has given to you, the power to do this. You are blaspheming the Spirit every time you say, I can't do that, I can't obey God, because He's given you the Holy Spirit. But if you say, Jesus is my Lord, he is my Savior, he is the one that I live for, when temptation comes, you remember first Jesus is the avenger. You remember how you were called by God into holiness. And you recognize that God has given you the Holy Spirit to give you the power presently to live in victory. Paul says, remember, remember your resources. Remember the Holy Spirit that's been given to you, that's indwelt you, that is now there to give you the strength to obedience. This should motivate you. I have the power to obey. I'm not a sinner who's completely in the power of sin. I've been freed from the power of sin. I'm a saint set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ and for His will. I have the power in the Spirit to be obedient because He promised it to me. And God keeps His word. And so we are this morning again called to remember and to look that the, we have the Holy Spirit. What should motivate you? It should motivate you because you know victory is yours. Satan is defeated by the power of the cross and you can live in victory today. You don't have to hang your head and hang on and just hope you can make it across the finish line. 
He says, I've given you the power to live a victorious Christian life, and that should just motivate you. That should just stoke your fires because you're not fighting a fight you can't win. You've got, a, you've got God on your side and you can't lose if you will submit to the Holy Spirit and live under his power. Be filled with the Spirit. And again, feeling of the Spirit isn't getting more of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit getting more of you. You're already indwelt. You've got the Holy Spirit. Just give it over to him, right? Let him control your life. And then victory is yours. And so Paul t- today again calls us and motivates us to live in obedience in the area of sexuality. Because guess what? Jesus is an avenger. You will stand before him and give an account for what you have done. Hopefully we would say we will stand before him and hear well done. You've been called You've been called a holy. It's a holy calling. You're in the sphere of righteousness now. It's incongruent for you not to be there. And lastly, you've been empowered to live a holy life in this area. Believe God, trust him, and be obedient to him. And victory is yours. I trust these things will motivate us the next few weeks and that we will remember these and that we will, we will look at them and we, will, we won't just walk out of here and say, well, I think he had three points. But we take those points and we meditate on them and we look at scripture. Be a Berean, check me out. I'm okay with that. Go to the word of God and have these, these motivations just fill your heart so that when temptation comes, you're ready. And then you will live a life that's glorifying to God. And your faith will not be lacking in this area. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that we can, we have the Holy Spirit that can illuminate these truths. And I pray that you would Take these truths we've heard this morning and just burn them in our hearts. Make them part of who we are. May your spirit continue to work in us that we might be more Christ-like. And may we be motivated to be those who live in obedience in the area of sexuality, that we would not allow this to derail our lives and to keep us in bondage, but that we would take these motivations and, and have them run through our lives that we might bring glory to you, I pray in your name. Amen.